What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Lucinda Williams who this year published an autobiography, Don't Tell Anybody the Secrets I Told You. Lucinda, the book came out earlier in the year. What's been the aftermath for you personally? Well, it's, I mean, I've been overwhelmed with great responses and great reviews and everything. Mostly people telling me they've read or they've listened to the audiobook. A lot of people, a lot of responses about that, the audiobook. People seem to really be responding positively to that. And that makes me feel good. <laughs> and so you read the audiobook yourself? Yes, yeah. And what was that like doing that? It was interesting. I'd never done it before. Um, I mean, the whole experience of writing a book is different than anything I've been through. You know, it's so, I mean, I've written songs, made, gone in and recorded albums and, you know, done all of that, everything that goes along with making an album. But it's, there's nothing that compares anything I've done in the past to writing your own book and all the things that go along with that, you know, the editing and the the sending the you know writing a piece and then sending it in for the editor to read and then getting the editor's feedback and going back and forth about whether that something should be included or not and you know that sort of thing so how did it come about that you actually wrote the book well for years people have been saying i should write a book you know because i, I guess it's because so many of my songs i have a handful of narrative songs and every whenever i perform i always talk about who i wrote the song about what i wrote it about and you know i go and try to go into as much depth as i can about the songs 
before I sing them when I'm on stage. And the audience seems to really like that and respond well to it. What was the actual process? Well, um, I got an offer from my manager, Tom Overby, could probably ha answer this better. but Who's also your husband, let's say. He's also my husband, yes. <laughs> but anyway, um, we were approached by, you know, a couple of different publishing companies in New York. Of course, they're all in New York City. And, you know, a bunch of meetings were planned where I would go and I would meet with the, with the people at the publishing companies, you know, and they were all very enthusiastic and, you know, we would just talk about what kind of book I wanted to make, write and see, I said, make like I was making an album, what kind of book I wanted to write. And they were very adamant. All, every one of them were, they were all very adamant about that. It be in my own voice, you know, so that was mainly what they were concerned about. So you made the deal. They said what they want. How did you actually write it? Right. Well, that was the thing. Before I wrote it, I didn't know how to get started. I mean, I just didn't know what to, you know, what I'm used to when I write songs to getting ready to make an album. I, you know, I like to be in a certain mood if I'm going to be writing. And this felt more like work, I guess, kind of, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't have the luxury of being able to I used to have this fantasy that if I ever wrote a book, I was going to be, you know, like these writers you hear about who go away to the mountains and live in a cabin for a year. You know, they they have a, they take a hiatus, you know, to write the great American novel. And they sit there in their cabin and drink whiskey or scotch and smoke cigarettes and write their novel, you know. That's what I thought it was always going to be like, but it was anything but that, you know, I basically grabbed a couple of legal pads, sat down in my favorite chair, which is a good start to be comfortable. And I started writing just as if I were telling someone my life story. You know, I put everything in order. But I didn't want it to sound like, okay, I was born in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and then I went to this town, and then I went to, you know, I wanted it to be well written. And that's what I was mostly concerned about. And I was very concerned that my dad wasn't alive anymore to kind of oversee my writing, you know, some because I could I could have asked him questions and he would have suggested things. And so I felt kind of insecure because he wasn't around anymore. And I really wanted, here's a good example of what it was like. I was backstage with Roseanne Cash one time at a show we were doing. And we were talking about, cause she had written a book and I was talking about my book and everything. And she suddenly broke the conversation and said, Lucinda, 
you don't have to be James Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, but that's just it. I want to be James Joyce. <laughs> you know, so I was kind of sort of holding myself back unnecessarily because I wanted to be able to have this well-written, you know, I wanted the New York Times to like it and everything. And really, I, what it really was, was I wanted my dad to like it. And I wanted all of his writer, all these writers I grew up with, who I had this eminent respect for, I wanted them to appreciate it and like it. Okay. So you finally get over the hump. You sit in a comfortable chair. <laughs> you have the legal pads. The hardest part is starting. Yeah. I had to have a certain kind of pen that I like. What kind of pen is that? Um. See, I knew you were going to ask me a question I wasn't ready for. <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay. I don't have it in front of me. I have to get one. Okay. Well, irrelevant of the brand name, what's so special about that pen? I just like the consistency of the ink. That it comes out even when you write it or the way it looks on the page? Yes, both. Okay. Yeah. And it's a ballpoint? No, I I don't like ballpoint pens. Never have liked those. So is it like a regular nib with an ink pen? Yes. It's a... John... Sorry. So we're gonna get a we're gonna get a verdict here on the pen. <laughs> I need that pen that I like. So it's one specific pen, and do you have to fill it with ink? No. Okay. So here Thank we you. have the pen from John. We have the actual pen. Okay. It's a, called a precise V seven. I've just done a commercial. <laughs> is this you've been your favorite pen for years how'd you stumble on this pen i don't know how do you ever stumble on a pen um, upon a pen it was just around i started writing with it and liked it amazon carries them yeah so it could be <laughs> delivered to, are you a big amazon person yeah i shouldn't be though because one time i was shopping on Amazon and Steve Earle, I was backstage at a venue and Steve Earle was there and he looked over my shoulder and saw what I was doing. And he said, are you shopping on Amazon? And I said, yes. And he said, Oh, I don't go on there. He said, that man is, that's a bad man. He's a bad man. The guy who runs Amazon. Well, you know, my opinion is this, that I had too many times I went to the store and they didn't have what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. Whereas I know they have it on Amazon. I'm not polluting. I'm not driving. And yeah. it's so convenient. Some things you can stop. Online shopping, Amazon, Google, yeah. Facebook. These things are here forever. Yeah, it's pretty hard to let go of it. Yeah, they're coming to my house seemingly every day. So how many times did you start and stop and start and stop before you found your groove um i don't know probably two or three months oh really oh yeah I, that's the other thing 
I was talking to a lot of people about writing a book and read a lot of other people's autobiographies or biographies before I started mine to, you know, see how they wrote theirs. And a lot of other musicians who had written books offered to talk with me about it and, or if I needed any help, please give them a call, that that kind of thing. And, um, and several of them told me how long it took them to write their books. And it, I, was I was amazed, actually. I think Bruce Springsteen said 10 years. I think Roseanne Cash said seven years. You know, so that made me feel better about it. Okay, so how long did it actually take you to write it? I think it was two or three years overall, and which sounds amazing. It's not like I was sitting in the chair for two or three years without moving, but it's just more about life getting in the way, you know. And we had we were still touring and recording, you know. I was trying to write this book in the middle of all the other stuff I had to do. Okay, you said something a few minutes ago about getting in the mood to make a record. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Well, I meant getting in the mood to write okay. songs. Right. Yeah, to record for the record. Well, okay, let's slow down. Do you say, oh, I want to make a record, I better write songs? Or are you writing songs, say, well, I have enough songs to make a record? Usually, that's a good question. Um, I prefer, it's happened both ways, but I prefer to just be writing songs and then have enough to go in and make a record. And I've done it both ways. I've done it that way where I'm just writing and I'm not, I don't feel pressured about having to get in the studio by a certain time. But I've also had that pressure a little bit, you know, um, like we have to go in the studio. We've got to be have a record out by next year or something. So you know, we got to get these songs. It's, I'd rather just concentrate on the songwriting and you know, be able to be spontaneous. So what does that look like? Are you standing in the shower and you go, "Oh man, I got it! I got to go to write this song down." Sometimes, yeah. I do. I, I come up with ideas in the shower quite often, actually. Or when I first wake up and I'm in that zone between asleep and awake, you know, and your brain's in a special kind of place. I get a lot of times I lay in bed like that before I actually get up and I am think I've got lines running through my head. And then I have to find the voice record on my phone. Or something to, I've got to get it down right away before I forget. Okay, do, this, do the words come with the music or the words come down and then you add the music? Lately, what it's been the words come and then I add the music. But occasionally, it happens both ways. Occasionally, I'll, a melody will pop out with some words, like maybe a hook line, you know. Okay, so you could be in the shower, or you could be in the bed and it's spontaneous. Do you ever sit down and say, I have to write a song and start writing a song? Only if I'm being asked to write a song for something, like a movie or something like that. It's not 
one of the things I enjoy doing as much, I call it writing on demand. You know, Steve Earl is speaking to Steve. He's great at that. He can just whip up these songs, you know, on demand like that for movies or TV shows or that sort of thing. Let's go back to the book. You're very personal in the book. Some of these people are still alive. How did you choose what to reveal and to what degree were you self-conscious about telling these truths? Well, you know, when it came to talking about previous romantic partners, <laughs> obviously I didn't want to start talking about, you know, the technical, you know, what, how it was in bed with this person or something like that, you know other than that too much alcohol may have been consumed and the night didn't go as well as I'd hoped. I think there's something in there about that with one of the guys, you know. Well, there are a lot of guys. I love this song by the tubes called Boy Crazy. Would you say that you became boy crazy at some point? <laughs> I knew. See, this was one of my fears because... I had so many guys listed in every, every other page. I talk about being smitten with someone. And I worried that there, there were too, many, too much of that in the book. You know, I'm writing too much about these, this guy and that guy and the other. And, you know, and now sure enough, you're asking me about that. Well, that well, was, well. Let, two things. Maybe I was. I was asking you that as more of a personality direction thing, one of the things I thought was great about the book was you talked about your crushes, you talked about your relationships in a way that people don't. I'm not judging you for okay. that. I just think Sorry, that most people was... don't lay it down. <laughs> no, seriously. But I'm asking Thank how you. you judge yourself, not how right. you judge us. Well, I just, I try to look at it as, as if, you know, someone else were writing it and how would I feel, you know? And also, I learned a little bit about that by reading some of the other artists' books. Like Carly Simon's book was pretty, um, you know, she talked about her relationship with James Taylor. And... There are just a couple of things I thought, wow, when I read the book, you know, like that might have been a little TMI, <laughs> you know. Well, what resonated for me was you said what kind of guy you like, you would feel a spark and you would be active as opposed to passive. Right. Yeah. Well, that's great that you got that impression of me. Wow. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm so shy, actually. Well, I can talk about relationships in my life and biggest relationships when I was took action in a way that I would never take action. And I can't sit here and tell you why, you know, it's yeah. like all of a sudden I did something that was completely out of character. Yeah. <laughs> it usually takes a little bit of wine for me to do that. <laughs> Two of my most serious relationships went on for years that I took action and I, both times I could not replicate that. I don't know what, it, I mean, I, you know, I just acted in a way that 
I never would before. Yeah. That's great, though. It is great, but as you talk about being a shy person, it's not something you can manufacture. If someone said, yes. go do that, he said, no, 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 I'm not doing yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you got married to Greg Souders of the Long Riders, who I certainly know from the publishing world. Yeah. You talked about previous relationships with the book. Why did you decide to get married then? Probably because when I, you know, when I start the answer out with probably, that means I don't really know. <laughs> probably because um, he told me he was my ace in the hole. You know, I'm the guy who's going to be here for you when all the other ones have left. And I was just ready for, to hear that, you know. And Okay, how hard was it to end it? It was hard, you know. Actually, I remember when he moved in with me, the day he moved in with me, I had all kinds of concerns and doubts, and you know. Because I was very, I'm, and I still am, very independent. You know, I like my quiet, alone time, especially if I'm going to write. So... Basically, he became a born-again Christian. Oh, while you were married? Well, towards the end of it, you know. That's enough to end a relationship. Yeah, it was. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. One thing in the book that you mention numerous times is your OCD, your obsessive compulsive disorder. Tell us about that. Oh, God. Well, it's a real thing, for one thing. Because, you know, people joke about it a lot. Oh, I've got OCD and all of this. But they don't really usually. You know, because if you really have it, I mean, it can be a serious thing. Get in the way of life. I heard that Bob Dylan had a similar thing that I have. Where you you feel like, you know... You had to wash your hands on a regular basis, which is a good thing. But sometimes I wash my hands when I don't really have to. I just think I do. You know, I don't like to touch doorknobs because other people's hands have touched them. God, this is so embarrassing. I can't believe I have o- I have OCD, and- too. I saw a special OCD doctor about it. It really helped. Okay. I say... Lucinda, we're going to go out for a burger. You lock the door. Can you leave or do you have to check to see if the lock is locked? I can leave. Yeah, I don't have that kind. Uh, Do you have any hoarding tendencies? I don't know. I mean, I do save certain things like memorabilia, photographs and that sort of thing. But I don't like clutter. So if I'm, I wouldn't be able to be a hoarder because of the clutter. Okay, let's talk about making a record. You say that you like what you want, but let's go one step further. Let's just assume you're in complete control. Let's say you're mixing the final track. How hard will it be for you to walk away and say, this is the one? It wouldn't be hard. Because I would know that this is the one, you know, but the main thing in the studio, when you say I'm in control, that's exactly it. You know, if I am in control, then I'm able to decide which track it is, you know, or if this is the track, you know, as opposed to debating it with the producer or the engineer, Because everybody's got their own opinion. I'm asking something a little bit different. Okay. Let's say that you are alone in the room. You were totally in control. Mm -hmm. Can you make a decision easily and move on? Or do you constantly ruminate around the decision? Well, maybe it could be better. Maybe this is a little worse. It's kind of a hard question because I've done both things and I 
might do one or the other. But I like to think that, yes, I would be able to make a decision and walk away. Okay, because that's a classic OCD thing. Yeah. So you have your washing your hands, you have touching the doorknob. What else would you classify as your OCD? Um, that's it. I mean, you know, what I other people consider OCD, I might not. I like I like things in order. I like things to be organized. I probably got that from my dad because he was like that. You know, I don't like clutter. I don't think that's OCD, though. That's just... Okay, we're having dinner. Know. We're having dinner. <laughs> but we're just talking. The silverware is laid out. And you notice that my silverware is askew. Are you going to reach over and straighten it? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh -huh. And yeah. do you ever get in OCD loops and are tortured by it? Yeah. And what do you do to get out of the loop, if anything? Well, hand sanitizer has been a game changer. Because then I don't necessarily have to wa find water and soap to wash my hands. I can just put, you know, spritz some hand sanitizer on and then I'm good to go. So it saves a lot of time. But I need to have one of those with me all the time. It's like my little drug or my little, you know, kind of, it calms me down. And But let's say you're home alone, you're not going anywhere, and you wash your hands. How long will it take you to wash your hands? Oh, you probably read that book, The Boy Who Couldn't Stop Washing. Well, I'm certainly aware of this, and I have my own issues. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, just a normal time. You know, I mean, I prefer that the water is hot as opposed to cold but even if there's no hot water i just wash my hands and go about my day okay so you have this itinerant lifestyle once you hit your late teens and you don't have great commercial success for the better part of 20 years Mm -hmm. And you're working, as you say, a lot of low-level jobs. You're working in record stores, etc. How did you keep your mood up? Antidepressants. <laughs> um, probably just, you know, the group of people I associated with were fairly up people and you know, I tried to surround myself with positive people for the most part. Do you take it or That's, did you take antidepressants? Yeah, I did and I do. What was the space in between? You were off antidepressants for a while? Yeah, well, it took a while before I started taking them because, you know, I didn't have anyone prescribe them. I mean, it took a while to find you know, the right doctor to talk to about it and everything. But one of them is supposed to target OCD, supposed to help with that. So, Which one is that? Effexor is... Okay, yeah, I know what Effexor is. Yeah, it's supposed to help with that. And you take something along with Effexor? <laughs> well, I'm kind of confused right now. 
that's what I'm talking to the doctor about is whether Effexor is working on its own or if we need to, um, you know, add something else or take something else instead. You have to try out a few different ones to see which one works better. It sounds like you know this already. Yeah, yeah, I do. But I know my story. I'm getting your story. So, uh, <laughs> you know, there's benefits to antidepressants, but I've mm -hmm. never taken a drug without side effects. So, do you find the antidepressants negatively affect you in any way, creatively or in other ways? No. It's, I've, I've just felt the positive effects, which have been just lifting me out of this black, I used to call it a black cloud, you know, that kind of settles over you. And, you know, just, or having a sense of well-being. Was this something you felt from a young age? Um, I probably had problems with it at a young age, but just didn't recognize, didn't know what it was. You know, just, I probably looked at it more as mood swings, you know, that sort of thing. Were you ever in existential despair? Like maybe, obviously you didn't commit suicide because you're still here, but was that something yeah. you say like, man, I just can't take it anymore? I felt like, man, I can't take it anymore, but that was as far as it went, it was that thought. We've all felt that way. I certainly think so. You know, it's hard to get yeah. an honest take from somebody. Let's switch gears to the beginning. You're born in Louisiana. Your father ends up working in Arkansas. What do people from the North not get about those states in the South? Thank you for asking that. That's the million-dollar question. Well, what they don't get is that we're not all backwards. We're not all lazy or, or stupid or uneducated. We're not all racist. Okay. And, I mean, I was doing a... This kind of goes along with what you're asking. I was doing a an event one time where I was being interviewed in front of an audience and I played some songs and then the interview was done as part of the performance and then the audience was allowed to ask, ask me questions afterwards. And this woman leaned over and very seriously, she asked, she said, you know, I would really love to travel down south sometime, but she said, what I really want to know is, is it safe? <laughs> right? I mean, that was, I'm, I'm serious. That was, you know, is it safe? Now, you know, that answers your question right there. Well, I uh, lived with a woman for years who was from Tallahassee, which certainly you go back a couple of decades, was more Georgia than South Florida. And there yeah. were certain certain things that were defined. She would say, you know, it's getting cold in here. It took me a long time to raise. That <laughs> meant raise the window. Where in the north, we would say, can you raise the window? 
But yeah. it would always be these little <laughs> hints around that you had to pick up on. That's funny. <laughs> and her father was extremely successful financially and ran in that crowd. And drinking was part of the culture. It was not a yeah. class thing whatsoever. No, no. That's not a class thing. Because I grew up with around a lot of riders and... They can certainly drink. They know how to drink. Yeah. I learned how to drink probably, you know, hanging around in that crowd. And to what degree were you in still a consumer of alcohol? Not any more than socially, you know. So you don't have an addictive personality? No. Well, I don't know. Maybe I do, but but I didn't get addicted to anything. So we're the exact same age. You're growing up in Louisiana in the 50s and early 60s. What is it like? You say your family didn't have that much money, but you weren't aware of it. Were you into the modern music? Were you listening to the Beach Boys in the Four Seasons? Were you oh, watching yeah. My Three Sons? What was everyday yes. life like? <laughs> well, you know, we all wanted it to be like Leave It to Beaver. But it was not Leave It to Beaver. You know, there was no mom in a nice dress wearing heels, fixing dinner and that sort of thing. You know, it was a little, it could be a little chaotic at times. You know, there was my dad, who was a poet and a college professor, not making that much money, married to a woman who had was dealing with mental illness a lot, and then three kids, you know, running around. I don't know how he did it. I mean, he would still be writing. I remember looking, seeing him sitting in a corner of the in the living room with his head bent down over a pad of paper, you know, he was either reading or writing all the time. So he could tune out and, the chaos? Yeah. Yes, he could tune out the chaos, and I wish I'd learned how to do that. So you're someone who needs your own space, can't be interrupted. Yeah. But my dad, at the same time, he was very... Um, we really bonded from an early age and he was there for me, you know, when my mother might've just not been able to deal with things on any given day. And my dad was always there, you know, he was very, he stayed very aware and he was very open-minded and, you know, very intelligent. And understood what was going on. You know, he was very empathetic towards my mother is the thing. So, you know, we didn't grow up with this feeling of, you know, he always said to the kids, I had, there were three of us. I was the oldest. He always said to us, it's not her fault. She can't help it. She's not well, you know. So we had somewhere to put it. Did your parents ultimately break up because your father met someone new 
or it was time. That's a good question, because he did meet someone new, but I think that was after they were already broken up. I think it was because it was time. And how hard was that for him? Um, I don't remember it being, you know, really heavy and traumatic or anything. I, as a kid, I remember feeling almost relieved, you know, because... There had been so much yelling and fighting and all of that that I think I was kind of relieved that that would be over with, you know. We wouldn't have to listen to them arguing all the time. So your mother moves out. How much contact do you have with your mother then? Quite a bit. She lived in New Orleans after that. She stayed. She loved it. She was from Louisiana originally. And her family was all there. So she lived in New Orleans. And I would go visit her from time to time and stay at her apartment. You know, we had a, we were close. You know, it, it was a challenging relationship and difficult at times. But, you know, I loved her and I knew she loved me and. You know, there wasn't any acting out or anything on her part with me. She saved that for my dad. So when she moved out, she lived far away in New Orleans? And how often? No, we were in Baton Rouge. Okay. Which is where the university, LSU, Louisiana State University is, is located there. And that's where my dad was teaching. So we were living there, and she lived in New Orleans, which is right next to Baton Rouge. It's an easy drive. And how often would you see her? I don't know, probably once a month or something. And how often would you talk to her? Maybe once a week. It's hard to remember. And when you interacted with her... Did you end up being the parent? Sometimes, yeah. I know all about that stuff. <laughs> okay, so your father brings home one of his students who is not even half a generation older than you are, and you're just hitting puberty yourself. How'd you cope with that, and could you ever accept it? Um... It was difficult. I didn't, I tried to cope with it, but again, it was one of those kind of strained relationships where, you know, I wanted it to be a certain way, but it was, you know, you can't really take those things and force them into a certain place. You know, I think she was trying really hard, maybe too hard to, you know, fill this certain role and I think I felt I remember feeling a little intimidated a little shy around her you know and then as a young person you're living in Chile what's it like being an American living in Chile in a you know a pre you know modern technology era yeah well, we had a stereo system, 
and I had Beatles albums. I was able to get a hold of them somehow or another and was listening to those nonstop. And there was a Chilean folk singer by the name of Violeta Pada, who I discovered while I was living there, who I just absolutely loved. And she was kind of like the John Baez of Chile. My dad was friends with, her brother was the poet Nicanor Pada, who my dad was became close friends with. And that's how I discovered Violetta Pada. Let's go back. How did you discover the Beatles? Probably hearing them on the radio and falling in love with the songs and eventually, you know, getting the albums and or the singles. Were you definitely a Beatles girl as opposed to the Rolling Stones? Yeah, I was a Beatles girl and then I was a Rolling Stones girl. I mean, it sort of happened at the same time. You know, but I loved the Rolling Stones. Loved them, loved them. Okay, so if you were in high school, how would you be described? What kind of person? <laughs> um, creative, friendly, cute. <laughs> well, were you one of those people, they say, well, she's hip and cool, but she hangs with the art crowd, or... She hangs with us. She's one of us. Or she's, you know, too cool. She's hanging with the cheerleaders. Where were you? No, God, I was not with the cheerleaders. I was not with the with the gym crowd, you know, the working out. I failed. I got zeros in gym. I hated it. I tried to be on the girls' softball team, and that failed miserably because they were so competitive and so mean-spirited. I didn't like mean-spirited people. I actually had a lot of guys as friends, and I would hang out with them a lot. Are you physically active? No, you had a stroke, but before and after that, are you physically active? Yeah, right now I'm working out with a trainer and lifting weights in a gym. It's a combination. I'm working with somebody who's a physical fitness trainer as well as a physical therapist. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. 
I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Okay, so what point do you pick up the guitar? When I was 12, 1965, which is the height of the folk music boom, which I was really into. And tell me about moving to Mexico. Yeah, that was my dad received a grant to go teach in Mexico for a year and live there for a year. That's a lot of the reasons we were in other countries was he would receive these, you know, visiting professorship grants. I'm not sure what they were called, but some kind of grant to go live in another country and teach there, work there for the time he was there. And do you speak fluent Spanish? I can get by. I wouldn't say it was fluent, but, you know, because I forget a lot of my verbs. If I lived somewhere for a while right now where I had to speak Spanish all the time, I would probably, it would improve. Okay, so you get a guitar. Is it a nylon string wide neck folk guitar? Is it a narrow string steel guitar? It's a... Uh, it's a it's an acoustic, but just a regular steel string acoustic guitar. From what I understand, from what I remember, one of my dad's writing friends, his name was Bill Harrison. He wrote a book called Rollerball, which was made into a movie, and another book called Pretty Baby, which was made into a movie also. And he was a really close old friend of my dad's. And 
from what I understand, he had left a guitar. He had this old broken guitar that he left at the house one day. And I picked it up and just, you know, looked at it and tried to play it a little. My dad saw me have an interest in it. And he bought me a, dad ended up buying me a silver tone guitar from Sears and Roebuck. Yep. <laughs> and that was my first guitar. <laughs> and how did you learn how to play it? Well, I got, uh, dad got me a, this guy to come over once a week who taught guitar lessons. And he was, he had a rock band in town. And he was also a creative writing student. So he had been, he had been at some of my dad's classes. And I guess they had been talking and, you know, he said, well, I give guitar lessons. So, you know, my dad arranged for him to come over to the house once a week and sit with me and give me guitar lessons. And it took. Okay. Yeah. So in the mid to late sixties, someone would play the guitar. You would go to somebody's house and everybody would sit there and you would sing. Were you the person who would bring the guitar and sing? Yeah. I was the person who would bring, or they would come over to our house and we'd be sitting around the living room and, my dad would lean over to me and say, honey, why don't you go get your guitar and come sing a couple of songs? He was real proud of me, and I guess he kind of liked to show me off a little bit. And I would go and get my guitar, you know, it would be in another room of the house, and so I'd go get it and come back. And so I had a, what that meant was that my first audience was comprised of these brilliant minds, you know, these writers who knew everything there was to know about literature and writing. And they're listening to me. And, you know, I mean, I was still developing, trying to find my voice. And what I remember in the very beginning was, you know, people coming over to me and saying, and kind of patting my shoulder and saying, You know, telling me I had soul, which basically meant I wasn't there yet, but keep going because there was something there. You know, they could hear something in there, even though I hadn't perfected it yet. I mean, I certainly wasn't Joan Baez or Judy Collins. What's the difference between Louisiana and Arkansas, Baton Rouge and Fayetteville? That is such a good question. I wish more people would ask questions like that. Because, um, you know, a lot of people think the South is it, it's all the same in the South. And that's so not true. It's probably similar to, like, I, I might ask or wonder, what's the difference between Maryland and um, Connecticut right. or something like that, you know? Um well, the food would be, you know, the food that was the history of food that, you know, might, I mean, these are modern times now, so you might not find this true now, but like back in the 50s and 60s, you could probably find more of a difference between the states 
But, I mean, that's true everywhere, I think, now. You know, things have become more homogenized and, you know, like the strip malls across America and that sort of thing. Those have taken over, so now you can't tell the difference as much. But back when you had the mom-and-pop stores and the mom-and-pop cafes and restaurants, that's when you would be able to tell the difference more, probably. Like Louisiana, you would find more seafood and shellfish dishes, that kind of thing. You know, well, it's because of the Cajun influence, the Creole influence. And what was Fayetteville like? Then it was a beautiful, almost idyllic little town sitting in the Ozarks. Incredibly beautiful area, the Ozark Mountains, you know, and the campus is a beautiful campus. Um, very progressive town. Like if you were going to live in Arkansas, you would want to live in Fayetteville probably, because politically it was more progressive than the rest of the state. You know, Bill Clinton was from Arkansas. He and my dad got to be friends. When did they become friends? When in Bill's career? Well, probably during the time, I think when he was governor, and at a certain point then during that time. Um... And, you know, there have been some really talented, famous people from Arkansas, like Glenn Campbell. And um, the people there are just really cool, friendly. It, it seems to be a creative bunch. But that might be because I was, you know, we were... My dad was at the university there. It's a college town. And, you know, like most college towns, there were a lot of progressive people living there or working at the university or students going to school there. And, you know, so lots of pot smoking, lots of... The 70s was a pretty really creative time to be there. There were a lot of hippies, people moving there because the, they could get land pretty cheaply. And, you know, these, the hippie types would be moving there and building these little cabins out in the country and that sort of thing. You keep on talking about your father's friends. Was he the type of person who was collecting friends in the center of the universe, always had an entourage? What was that going on? Yes. There? He loved he loved to do that. Yeah. And what was the food like back in the day in Arkansas as opposed to Louisiana? Um, it was probably more, well, of course, depending on where you went. But the native food would have been, you know, like country cooking, you know, um, baked ham, mashed potatoes, black-eyed peas, that sort of thing. 
okay, you're in an era, you're a little young, but this is when all the racial stuff is happening in the South. A lot is happening in Mississippi. Yeah, and there's a lot happening in Memphis, which is just over the river from Arkansas. What was your experience with uh, racial unrest and the quest for equal rights for uh, all? Yeah, well, I mean, I remember it being just part of the culture. There was a whites-only sign. I remember as a, when I was in high school, I'd seen it somewhere on the outside of a shop. It said whites only, or, you know, you would see that from time to time. And my boyfriend and I jumped in our bicycles and rode over there with spray paint, spray painted over it. And my high school was, I was very active as a teenager in um, protest movements and marches and demonstrations and all of that. I jumped into all of that with great fervor. And my high school, a couple of times I showed up at school and the kids would be marching around the school as a protest. It was almost like the union, or it was almost like a picket line where you didn't want to cross through, you know. Okay, I was living in, a, in Connecticut at that particular time. And there was a lot, big social movement. We were protesting and there were people on the other side, but we get the impression as you went down South, the people on the other side had more fervor, were more pissed about the people who were progressive. Is that true? You mean the people who, the racist people? Well, you, you yeah, mean? the people who didn't like you protesting. Oh, you mean racist rednecks in the South? Uh, yes. Go ahead and say it. Go ahead and say <laughs> it. That's okay. So what was it like being, okay. you know, you're a big liberal protesting against the war and for women's yeah. rights, et cetera. What do the racist rednecks have to say about that? They weren't real happy, just like you said. I think that was a global issue you know, at the time. So you moved to Mexico with your father and, yeah. and you don't go to school? No, because I couldn't, I had been kicked out of school for being involved in these demonstrations and marches. And as a form of protest, one morning in school, I refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance because we're in Vietnam. And I was kicked that they added that to my suspension. And I went home and my dad said, that's okay, honey. We'll get you an ACLU lawyer, you know, and he did. And it proved to be unconstitutional. So I got let back in school, but because I'd been suspended or expelled, I didn't have my paper, the proper paperwork to be able to get into school in Mexico. So I was just out of school the entire year that I would have been a senior in high school. And I, I just read, I was a, became a voracious reader and, you know, listen to my records and play guitar and learn songs. And 
I was very productive, actually, during that year out of school. So are you still a big reader today? Probably not as much because I had so much more free time back then than I do now. I'm, it's usually now a toss-up between reading or working on a song. Okay, you're in Mexico. This is when you first start to play out. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, that was me sitting in the living room performing with, there was a friend of the family's who, his name was Clark Jones, who we'd met in Arkansas, I mean, in New Orleans when we were living there. And he, I think he was a friend of my mother's in the beginning. And he was a, folk, a bona fide folk musician, sort of reminded me of somebody like Pete Seeger. He could play multiple instruments, guitar, ukulele, um, auto harp. And he knew all these old folk songs, the traditional folk songs. And so we would sit around and play music in the house. And he came to visit us in Mexico. And we were performing in the living room for friends of the families, friends of my dad's. One of the guys who was over at the house that night worked for the State Department. And Clark and I sat and sang some songs. And the State Department guy said to my dad, Wow, this sounds pretty, they sound pretty good. What if we, I've got an idea. Why don't we, why don't I try to get set up some shows for them to perform around Mexico at different schools and places? And he figured it would be a good, um, you know, like an ambassadorship kind of, you know, a good way to um, improve the relationship between the United States and Mexico. And so that's what we did. So Clark drove his little car, and I sat in the front seat. And we stayed in motels and roadside inns and, you know, um, and did these shows as a duo. Clark Jones, they called me Cindy Williams back then. And the Mexican audience just loved it. They just ate it up. We did... Bob Dylan's songs and Peter, Paul, and Mary. And I wasn't really writing at that time. And you were living in Mexico where you're smoking dope? Yeah. <laughs> I used to go meet with these kids in the park, not too far from our house. And these Mexican hippie kids smoke pot. And they would always try to get me to go to Oaxaca. For the mushrooms, you know, they would say, come on. Tenemos ir a Oaxaca, you know. Right. We have to go to Oaxaca for the mushrooms. And there was this one guy who I was attracted to, and he kept saying he wanted to tener sexo. Quiero tener sexo. I want to have sex. And, you know, I knew what that meant at the time. But it wasn't going to happen. And my dad found out I was smoking pot in the park, and he got upset, not because of the pot, but he said, 
you know, I could get deported and lose my job and it would just mess everything up. And he was more comfortable with me staying at home doing these things, you know, drinking and smoking pot or whatever. You come back from Mexico, you finish high school, you go to college for like 10 minutes and you drop out. In the book, you say that your father says that's okay. I mean, on the surface, your father's an academic, both your parents are college graduates. What do they say about their oldest daughter <laughs> says no way? Well, yeah, my dad was very um, patient and empathetic when it came to grades when I was in high school. For instance, I didn't do well in math. I did, I did well in languages. Not good with numbers, good with language. You know, and he would say, well, that's okay. As long as I was good in certain things, as long as I was thriving in certain subjects, he was okay. He didn't expect me to be 100% in er with everything. And he just, uh, he understood. He just got things. He understood. That's why one reason I loved him and looked up to him so much. This, I'm not sure about, I'm not sure where, when you were talking about when I went to college for 10 minutes. Or well, something. I mean, it sounds like from what the book that you went for like a semester and then you went, dropped out, went to New Orleans. Something like that. Yeah. I went for about a year to the University of Arkansas. And then it, at mid semester, I went and visited my mother in New Orleans and I was offered this job in a little, little place called Andy's on Bourbon Street. And that was when I called my dad and I was supposed to go back to school in the fall. This would have been in the summer. And, but I wanted to stay in New Orleans and play music at this little place for tips instead of going back to school. And he said, okay. He just got it. He understood because he was an artist also. He was a poet. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, 
or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. When did you have the inspiration that you would be a professional musician? That you wanted to be an artist? Yeah. Well, there was the time when I wanted to be, the feeling of I want to do this. And then there was, I'm actually going to make this happen, or this is actually going to happen. You know, those were two different times. Well, tell me about those two times. (laughs) Well, the first time was when I was 12 or 12 and a half, and I heard Highway 61 revisited for the first time, which was also the first time I heard Bob Dylan. And it, you know, just rearranged my brain cells. I didn't understand all the lyrics at the time, but it didn't matter. You know, it it had an effect on me in a big way. And I decided at that point that I wanted to be able to write songs like that and do what he was doing. And what I saw him doing was taking, basically taking something like poetry and setting it to folk rock music. And I just, the the combination of those two things just completely blew my mind. And I, I understood it on some level, even though I was only 12, but I understood what he was doing artistically, musically. And it really appealed to me. So that was the inspiration. When did you say, this is the direction I'm going to go? That was the same time. That was the inspiration and the direction I wanted to go. (laughs) So when you're in New Orleans playing for tips, what's going through your mind in terms of your career? Probably that, you know, I was playing, performing by myself, accompanying myself on guitar that, Maybe, you know, wouldn't it be great if I had a band like Bob Dylan had or something like that, you know? Or wouldn't it be great if people were listening instead of talking in the audience? 
And then over time, you know, that happened. I put a band together and then, you know, I remember the first time I performed somewhere when people actually knew who I was and listened. And when was that? Um, probably the 80s sometime, like maybe after that Rough Trade album came out. So that was a long time where they weren't listening. Yeah. Tell us about making the two Folkways albums. Yeah, those were, that was almost a, well, I remember uh, there was a friend of mine who I'd met in New Orleans by the name of Jeff Ampolsk. And he had recorded an album. He was a singer-songwriter, you know, not known or anything. He was just getting started. And he had made an album for Folkways. And he and I were talking on the phone one day. I was in, at my dad's house in Fayetteville. And Jeff and I were on the phone. And he said, you know, you could probably make a record for Folkways. And I said, really? You think so? And he said, yeah, I'll just send him a cassette tape. And I bet they'll like it and they'll make a record with you. And I said, okay. So he gave me the inf their information and I made a little cassette tape of songs and sent it to Mo Ash at Folkways Records. And sure enough, they sent me back a one-page contract and a check for $250. <laughs> and I managed to with the help of some friends, managed to scrape together some studio time at Malico Studios in Jackson, Mississippi. Because my dad had a close friend who had connections there. And he helped make that happen. So I went down there and recorded my first album, which was called Rambling on My Mind, after that Bob Dylan, I mean, after that Robert Johnson song. And I went in one afternoon just with another guy named John Gramado, who is from Houston, Texas. He played really good blues guitar and he played he accompanied me on on the songs. So you finish the tape, you send it to Folkways Records. If you went mm -hmm. to your local record store, did they have it? Well, eventually they did. You know, if they carried Records like that, yeah, they would have it. The independent record stores would have it, usually. Well, did you feel any buzz from having made that record? Um, Just locally, you know, maybe locally and regionally around, you know, where I, was, where I would be playing live. Eventually, I moved to Austin, Texas, and I lived in Austin and Houston, for a number of years and that's where i would have felt that little buzz just on that level so you go to new york you have these two guys they put up money for a demo no one wants to make a record with you mm -hmm. <laughs> you know you, you ever think man i'm gonna hang it up it crossed my mind but i didn't want to i just i don't know i guess i was What's the expression? Foolhardy and something. Fancy free and foolhardy or something. You know, I just, I felt like it was going to happen at some point. Because I had all these people around me encouraging me a lot. And that kept me going. 
Meanwhile, you're working minimum wage jobs. Yeah. Minimum wage jobs are not that fun. No, but, you know, every other musician I knew was working those kind of jobs. I mean, it just came with the, you know, as part of the package. That's just what you have to do. So you weren't saying, I'd like to have a house, a new car. You were saying, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, I was probably thinking that in the back of my mind. And then tell us about moving to L.A. Well, I had some close friends who were real supportive of me and my music. And one of them was trying to become a manager in the music business. He, he actually ended up working with me for a, a little bit. And he encouraged me to come out there. You know, I think I just went initially went out there to play. He get he helped set up a gig for me out there. But in the back of my mind, I think I was thinking I was probably going to stay. I didn't know for sure, but I went out there and I actually liked it a lot. I like the people on the. I like the weather, of course. Everybody says that it's true. But the music scene was really viable and exciting, I felt like. There were a lot of great artists playing around the city at that time, like Dave Alvin and the Blasters. And, you know, the local music scene was just fabulous at that time in Houston. And it was very uh, eclectic. You know, there were these different kinds of music that were blending together. And bands like the Lonesome Strangers, he played a hybrid of, you know, a hybrid version of country and punk. They used to call it cow punk. You know, it's kind of like country music sped up real fast. <laughs> and I would open shows for those guys sometimes. And, you know... Uh, Rosie Flores was getting going. You know, she was creating a pretty good buzz. And Dwight Yoakam was getting ready to hit really big at that time. And there, then there were all these other, like, on the fringe kind of rock bands, like Green on Red and Blood on the Saddle. And they were, they were kind of punk-based roots, like roots of music mixed with punk, kind of. Well, punk is really roots music initially, but, you know, so that was going on a lot back then. So there was an openness happening in that scene that really appealed to me and a lot of places to play. <clears throat> okay, just to be clear, you said you said you mean Los this is all happening in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. But the late 70s, early 80s, there's a ton of bands, all the acts you mentioned, and there's a thin layer that gets signed, and then the others seem to work for a while and then spread apart. But you don't get a deal. Right. How depressing is that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting because that hybrid thing that I was talking about also could have could have applied to me because I was mixing country with rock 
you know, but, or they said, actually, I fell in the cracks between country and rock. And, you know, they didn't know what to do with that. You know, and you mentioned this in the book that the record company people are full of shit and don't know what's going on. But did you ever sit at home and say, I know what they're looking for. I'm going to write a hit and that'll get my foot in the door. You know, that's just it, Bob. I didn't know how to write a hit. I would love to write a hit song if I could figure out how to do it, you know. But no, I didn't think that because I was a dyed-in-the-wool rebel. I think I was probably born a rebel. Okay, at 70 years old, are you still a rebel? Hell yes. Or as they say, hell to the yell. <laughs> How would that manifest itself in everyday life? Oh, God. You probably need to talk to people who live with me. <laughs> I don't know. I've just, you know, the record, you have to remember, like, back then at least, and it's still that way, I guess, to some degree, but, you know, there was that feeling of them and us, you know, it was like, we're the artists, you know, we're the creators, we're the magic makers. Those guys are the corporate business makers, and they don't know anything about creativity and art, music, or anything. You know, record company people, you know, they're just it's there's this wall between the artists and the record company guys, which isn't to say that there weren't some really good people in the record company business. There were some great ones and still are some good ones, but far and few between, you know, most of them were thinking about the dollar, not how creative something or how good something is creatively, you know, from my perch, at this late date, the artist changed. Where the rebel spirit that you embody and was in Texas yeah. for a few decades, everybody moved to the center. It's almost like politics. It's like, you know, the mainstream Democrat was, well, let me say, like Nixon would be a, re a Democrat today, which is hard to believe. God, that's a scary thought. <laughs> All the artists... You know, yeah, they they don't want to be too edgy, you know, or else there are people with no talent who are complaining, and that's a thing unto itself. Yeah, because you have to have, if you're going to complain, you have to have something to bring to the table. That's the name of that game. You have to have something they want before you can make demands. I figured that out early on, you know. So you end up making a record for Rough Trade. Yeah. Now, granted, it was a different era back then. Today, everything's been blown apart. But everybody who knew what Rough Trade was, which was basically an English company, would say, if you're playing Roots to Find Music, this could be the worst label to ever make a deal with. Well, you might think that, but they were so much more creative-based and open-minded than any of the other labels who were approaching me, you know. Most, of, a lot of the labels were, who passed on me were major labels, but even the really small other labels passed on me, like Rounder Records and Rhino Records, which was signing people at the time. Um, Sugar Hill Records, you know, all those small 
folky, kind of rootsy labels, except for Rough Trade. They were the only ones who basically approached me and said, we like your voice, we like your songs. Let's make a record. They'd never seen me perform live before. Unlike Grounder Records, who came to see me play at this dive bar in L.A., in Hollywood, on the 4th of July or something. And I had a bunch of the Long Riders guys sitting in with me. You know, it was a drunken, crazy night, 4th of July, and they came to see me play. And, you know, afterwards, they, I talked to them and they said, well, we just don't think you're ready to go on the road yet. You know, because my stage presence with the band wasn't polished enough, basically. It's rock and roll, man. Come on. God, what happened to the, like you were saying, you know? Would that have happened back in the day in the 60s, you know, when? Well, the 60s. The executives woke up and said, we have no fucking idea. And they hired young people, the so-called, my air quotes, label hippie. And then, yeah. then there became so much money in the 70s. And then by time, this is a little bit later, by time you hit the Tommy Mottola era at Sony, you know, the, right. label, the label heads start wearing suits and they think they're the stars. Right. So, but- the Rough, yeah. Rough Trade album comes out. It is the most successful American act Rough Trade ever has. And it's not like it explodes, but it becomes a real cult item. And as yeah. years go by, it gets gains even more and more respect. What was it like being the artist in that world? It was awesome. It was great. I mean, the reviews were coming in. The critics loved it. I was getting all this publicity and exposure, you know, for the first time. And, and retro, I mean, they were just a great little label, you know, they were independent though. And they didn't have the, of course, the financial, you know, um, they just didn't have the funds that a bigger label would have. So certain things they weren't able to do as well, like, they didn't have as big of a staff and they had trouble getting the albums shipped to record stores. You know, the record stores wouldn't order as enough albums. You know, they just order a few. Whereas if you're on Sony records or something like that, you know, the record stores order an enormous amount because, you know, you're on a bigger label and there's more guarantee. They think that it's going to sell in the store. You know, so there was there were a few drawbacks like that, but just in terms of the heart and spirit of the label, Rough Trade was just, you know, miles ahead of any of those other labels at the time. They sent me to Europe on tour. I mean, they they really invested quite a bit in me. Were you making any money or you were famous and broke? No, famous and broke. <laughs> <laughs> so you sign up, sign, you make a deal with Bob Buziak at RCA. He gets squeezed out. Uh, yeah. Then he goes to Chameleon uh, Pritzker's label. And how did you feel about that album coming out? Well, first of all, I loved Bob Buziak. He was one of the good guys, you know. 
even though he was running a big major label RCA, but he had the mentality more of an independent record guy, you know. So I felt really good about him, which is basically the only he's the only reason I ever went to RCA because I had real mixed feelings about it because I was on rough trade and RCA, you know, jumped in and wanted to sign me. And, you know, I didn't want to abandon rough trade because they had opened the door for me when nobody else would. So and that became a whole nother story when I went with RCA. You may have heard the story about the A&R guy who was appointed to me. And when we were, we were rehearsing with my band at the time to get ready to go in the studio and start the, I think it was the Sweet Old World album would, would have been the next one. Yeah. Yeah. And the A&R guy, his name was, sorry, I'm going to say his name, Bob Buziak. No, no, Bob Buziak ran the label. He was in the Oh, A&R. no, I'm sorry. Yeah. Bennett Kaufman was my, he was the, he had been appointed the head of A&R for the entire West Coast of the United States, you know. And we're in this, in rehearsal studio going over the songs with the band and everything. We started talking about producers and I mentioned Bob Johnson, at which point he asked, who's Bob Johnson? Well, right there, right. you know, we've got a problem. <laughs> who's Bob Johnson? And I said, well, you know, he produced Blonde on Blonde. And he goes, and I swear that I'm serious as a heart attack. He says, oh, Blonde on Blonde, is that a band? <laughs> And I feel bad when I tell this story in a way because I feel like I, I just, I'm, you know, joking at his expense. But it's you very know, but disheartening when they own you. It's very disheartening, and I feel stuck and trapped. And I'm thinking, okay, I've got to work with this guy now, you know. And it was just, I was shocked. We were all shocked. The guys in the band and I just all looked at each other and rolled our eyes like, I mean, this guy's credibility went out the window, you know. I'm never going to be able to communicate with or connect with him. So, ultimately, you make a deal with Rick Rubin. Mm-hmm. What's your take on Rick Rubin? I was a little intimidated by him in the beginning, you know. He was a you know, rather large physical presence with really long wavy hair and a big long beard. And, but he had a sweet nature, very good natured. And I could tell that he respected what I was doing musically. And, you know, who knows what would have happened had he actually become the producer of my next album. Look what he did for the Beastie Boys. He invited me over to his house in the Hollywood Hills, which was massively impressive, just that alone, his home there. And we sat around in his living room with the stereo system and all these records piled up in CDs. And he said, I have an album I want to play you. And it was PJ Harvey's. It might have been her first album. I'm not sure. It was the one that The Edge produced, mm-hmm. I think. 
And he said, you know, he's, this is what I have in mind for you, kind of, is what he told me. I think he got me, basically, but I think he also saw more possibilities than had been explored, maybe. Okay, even when he does produce you, he's a pretty hands-off guy. You yeah. go into the studio, you send him cassettes. What did he say? He said, you know, he liked the direction it was going in, but he wanted to, it needed, at a certain point, what started to show up was when we were mixing you know, and that's when he wanted to add keyboards or at one point we recorded Drunken Angel. He wanted to take one of the verses out because it was too long. Well, that was probably because he never explained, you know, why, why was it too long? It was probably too long for radio, for airplay, you know, because they had this rule about it can't be longer than whatever it is, you know, two and a half minutes or something. And he wanted me to remove one of the verses, and I said no. See, that's the kind of thing. That's where the rebel thing comes in. But it's not really, a, it's an, as much a rebel thing as it is an artistic decision. I'm not going to take a verse out of a song because it needs to be in there. It's part of the story. You know, I don't care if it fits on the radio. Fuck the radio. You know, I mean, so that was me. So, He's saying, take a verse out. I say no. And, you know, he said, okay, at least. At least I can give him that. He didn't, he didn't force me or anything. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Has anybody ever told you what to do and they were right? <laughs> That's a good question, too. You're just full of them today, Bob. <laughs> um, God, I wish I could remember. Um, yeah, I guess maybe the good example, as close as example as I can get to that would be like, maybe I wanted to do a vocal over on a song and was told, you know, you don't need to do this over again. It's fine. It's great. You're singing your ass off. And it was, you know, and then I, I would try to sing it over, you know, but then I realized, yeah, they're right. It's done. I don't need to try to improve it, you know. But the point is and was, though, that I might, maybe I just want to try to do it again just for my own satisfaction. And that would be the difference between people when I was working in the studio. Like, when I worked with Charlie Sexton on the Essence album, we were, we were working on my song Blue, and I felt like I could have maybe got I could maybe get a better vocal, so I wanted to try to sing it again. And he said, well, I don't think you need to, but if you want to, go ahead. That was what I wanted someone to say, not no, you know, just whatever makes you feel comfortable. Well, I think that's one of the shifts, you know, after the 60s and the 70s, the record contracts were, we deliver the album, you have to put it out, whatever it is. Doesn't mean you have to promote it, but you have to put it out. Whereas today, everybody at the label thinks they're an expert. When you're, if you're a true artist, <laughs> you know. It's a different yeah. mentality. So right. you ultimately put out car wheels on a gravel road, and that really cements your place in the firmament. Yeah. The record is done. Did you know that was going to happen? No, I did not know because... There was, it was so chaotic getting the record done that, you know, I was insecure. I wasn't sure about this. I wasn't sure about that. I was questioning everything. I just hadn't had a whole lot of experience in the studio making records. This is what you have to remember, you know. So, you know, I was still, to me, it was just still this amazing process and scary process kind of because whatever goes on, down there is permanent that's it you know and however many 
thousands of people are going to hear this and what if I make a mistake and I can't fix it or, you know, all these kinds of thoughts are running through my head. That, that's probably my, part of my OCD thing carried over into the studio. Well, that's why I was asking earlier, you know, whether you could be satisfied or need to redo it all. That's where I yeah. was going. Well, I would I would have a hard time when it came to my vocal a lot of times. You know, I would think, oh, that I hit a flat note there. I've got to fix it. And, you know, the producer or engineer or whoever would be saying, no, Lou, it's not flat. It's fine. You just think it's flat. I could, I understand why you might think it's flat, but. I remember my engineer, Dusty Wakeman, when we were working on Carwell's at one point, he said, Lucinda, he says, you know, the Native American Indians, when they would weave a blanket, they would leave a mistake in the blanket on purpose so it wouldn't be perfect, you know. And he used that as an analogy to try to get me to understand the, the idea of imperfection. Well, there are two things there. I think the imperfections make the records human. And I could talk a number of records, the imperfections are what make them great. However, that is classic OCD and a distorted thought. When something is okay, but you can't settle down with it. Yeah, yeah. I had that problem in the studio. So Car Wheels comes out. What's your experience? Well, there were a couple of things on it I didn't like that I just fretted over and would listen to. And every time I'd just be, oh, I hate that. Every time it would go by and I didn't think it sounded good. And then over time, of course, it didn't bother me. But I was completely in awe and shocked when I won that Grammy for contemporary best contemporary folk album. I mean, I was completely, I was not expecting that at all. That blew me out of the water. Okay, I was talking to my psychiatrist earlier today, and he's older than I am, not a hip guy. And I say, yeah, well, today I'm doing this podcast with Lucinda Williams. He goes, oh, he knew who you were. So that showed that you permeate the culture did you right? did you <laughs> did you start to feel that um over time i started realizing that you know something's happening here you know people are hearing this record my name's getting around you know the critics loved it i guess i would have been called a, a critics darling you know so I was I was lucky in that regard. Okay, you have this success, you win this Grammy. How hard is it to write songs and go to the studio next? Ooh, it was hard. Cause now I'm thinking about it too much. My mind is running away with me, and I'm thinking, okay, they loved Carwells for these reasons. But these particular songs that are all narrative, or the songs that were getting the most attention were narrative songs. Those kinds of songs take a lot of work, or these particular ones took a lot of work. Songs like Drunken Angel, Lake Charles, Pineola, you know, about specific people with really interesting stories behind them. 
And those are the kind of songs I can just whip up, you know. And a lot of the songs on Rough Trade were written during that downtime that I had in Silver Lake after I'd gotten a development deal with Sony Records. And I had time to sit in my apartment in Silver Lake and write songs every day. You know, because I had this development deal they'd given me, which meant, you know, I got a check every month from them. You know, they give you the funds to live on for six months or whatever it is. And so you can buy groceries and pay your rent and, you know, just spend that time writing, working on songs. And then you do a demo tape at the end of that period, which I did for them. And, you know, then they decide if they're going to give you an actual recording deal or not based on the demo tape that you do when you have that after you get the development deal. So I had done that for Sony Records. This guy, Ron Oberman, was the A&R guy who pulled me in there. And he was real nice. He was a cool guy. But then they passed on me, basically. After I did the demo tape, this is when that country and rock division thing started, because I did that demo tape for Sony in L.A., and Sony in L.A. said it was too country for rock, so they sent it to Sony in Nashville, who said it was too rock for country. In any event, you didn't get a deal, so how did you feel? <laughs> really disappointed, because when I first got the development deal, I thought, well, this is a done deal. You know, they're going to sign me. I'm going to make a record for Sony Records. I'm not going to have to, I'm going to be able to quit my day jobs and this is going to be great. And I was on cloud nine and, you know, did the demo tape. Fantastic musicians on that demo tape. Some of the guys from NRBQ played on it. David Mansfield, the keyboard player from NRBQ was on it and some other really good people. And, you know, I just thought, there was this whirlwind of activity and it felt real positive. And, you know, then when they decided no, because, you know, it was the, that classic thing where Ron Oberman was, he wanted to do it, but then he had to convince the rest of the label. You know, that's where the business, that's where the numbers guys come in. You know, well, what is this? We're not sure how to market it. You know, then you become a product like that they're trying to market. And they have these meetings and the men in suits come and they, they start talking numbers. And that's when they decided no. Okay, let's jump forward. We got into this story because you're saying songs like Lake Charles, you can't write in a day, but you have to make another album. Yeah. And I managed to come up with the songs. But even Sweet Old World, I remember we went in and we cut a bunch of stuff. And, I'm, you know, I was comparing everything to car wheels already. And I was terrified. You know, I said I'm, I felt stuck because I felt like whatever album I make after car wheels, people are going to compare it to car wheels. It's, they're either going to say it sounds the same as car wheels or they're going to say it's not as good as car wheels. So I felt like I couldn't win for losing. And we cut some stuff for, for Sweet O' World. And I think we're at Essence now. 
Okay. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. No, I thought, was it Sweet Old World right after Car Wheels? Sweet Old World was before Car Wheels, then came Essence. Sweet Old World was after the Rough Trade record. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. That rough and that was hard to. Okay, so you had a hard time following up the rough trade record. Yeah, tell me about the hard time following up car wheels. Well, it was you know similar issue where because car wheels was so successful, I felt like it was gonna everything was gonna be compared to it. So the songs had to be as good or better on the next record. You talk in your book about changing your writing style. Well, I started, I was working on songs for Essence, and I was coming up with these songs that weren't really fleshed out lyrically that much, but the music was really cool. And I thought, you know, is this going to be okay to do? Can I get away with this? Because before that, my songs were, you know, like I said, a lot of narrative lyrics and you know it's paying a lot of attention to the lyrics and I was still doing that but what really helped me was at the time Bob Dylan's album Time Out of Mind had come out that Rick Rubin had done and I listened to it and loved it and I felt like this is so musical it's such a musical album you know it's different than most of his other records. And in fact, the, the Nashville paper gave it a bad review because they said the lyrics weren't up to Bob Dylan quality, you know. But the way I felt about it was that he was stretching out a little bit and letting the music talk. You know, I'd always want, I loved the, the stuff that I loved that I was listening to was Talking Heads. I loved them because great lyrics, but the music, you know, which supported the lyrics. And I mean, I love good, I love rock music, you know. I love beats. I love hip hop. One of my favorite artists is this guy, Atmosphere out of Minneapolis, who I just absolutely love. He's a great writer, he's a great lyricist, and his music is just infectious, you know. It's a similar thing to what Bob Dylan was doing when he first went electric, you know. I love that kind of stuff. I've always been drawn to it. I love Thievery Corporation, because they do that. You know, Marching the Hate Machines Into the Sun, the song they co-wrote with Wayne Coyne from Flaming Lips. So I love that combination of, uh, you know, really interesting, well-written lyrics, but infectious, you know, hip-hoppy rock music behind it. <laughs> okay, for someone who got a late start and had all sorts of issues going from label to label. In the last 20 years, you put out more records than anybody of your stature. <laughs> so you just hit a groove? What accounts for that? 
Um, well, you know, I signed, ended up signing with Lost Highway. And, you know, so when you sign with a label, you have a contract. You have to give them so many, a certain amount of recordings, you know, that year or whatever it is. So that was part of it, just the... And when I was on Lost Highway, I felt like I'd finally found my family to a large extent. You know, I just absolutely adored Rick Rube, or not Rick, Luke Lewis. Just loved working with him. You know, he put his money where his mouth was and walked the walk and talked the talk. And, you know, he was a music lover. Well, he ultimately, you know, gets pushed aside, the label closes, and you continue to make records independently distributed by 30 Tigers. So, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, you might add a contract, but now you have no contract, you're still making the records. <laughs> well, the, a lot of that I have to owe to my husband manager, Tom, who is always coming up with ideas. He worked at record labels for a number of years. He used to work for Best Buy. And so he has that he's that capability of he's got the business sense and the creative sense combined. So he's the one like one of the things I did were those jukebox, you know, the jukebox recordings, that, an idea that Tom came up with. Basically, we're you know, just in between record albums. And I was talking about songs I loved by other people. And he said, well, why don't we go in and record some of those? So we would, he, he would say, you know, pick your favorite Bob Dylan songs, whoever it might be, Tom Petty. And we go in, we went in and worked him up with the band and recorded them. And we ended up getting a couple of got filmmaker guys, photographers to come in and document it in the studio. And, you know, people saw it and heard it and loved it. And then Tom got the idea to, you know, put it on, make it available online so they could downstream it or whatever it's called, you know. <laughs> and we jumped on that wagon, you know, that bandwagon, the, social media thing with it and you know it took off and you know so that was an idea that tom had come up with to fill the gap in between records well does he ever come up with an idea and you say no not going <laughs> to do that sometimes yeah but you know then we talk about it and so when in this equation do you start making any money? Huh, that's a good question too. Uh, I I remember telling Tom at one point recently, like, when am I going to start seeing the results of the fruits of my labor? You know, like you hear about you know all these rock bands who get famous and they have all these cars and multiple houses and all this stuff and. You know, it's not like that because, you know, you have to pay taxes, first of all, which is true for every American. But the more money you make, the more taxes you have to pay. So, I mean, you still have to watch 
your spending and all of that is just on a different level, I guess. Well, do you ever go somewhere and say, too expensive, not going to pay? Tom will say that sometimes. But usually once, if we go to the trouble, you mean like a nice restaurant or something? So that could be a good example, yeah. Yeah, we won't go. If he thinks it's going to be too expensive, then we just go somewhere else. You know? And I would give him a hard time anyway if he said <laughs> he would know better than to say that. And do you have any personal extravagance, something you do or something you own or somewhere you go? Mm, probably like what you were talking about before. I like to shop online. I love buying. I probably shouldn't go into office supply stores. Because <laughs> I, I love buying. I go crazy when I see blank, fresh, new notebooks and pads of paper and pens. I just want to buy them all. You know. So let's go sideways for a minute here. You are a woman in a male-dominated business. What's that yeah. been like? It sucks, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes I have to remind myself how many that there aren't women you know, we don't, the majority of engineers are men, majority of producers are men, men run all the record labels. I mean, I don't know of a label run by a woman. So, you know, there's that. Majority of musicians are men. You know, I love seeing a woman playing drums. I love seeing a woman playing an instrument generally reserved for men. There's something really sexy and cool about that. You know, or a woman playing bass or drums. And how any Me Too moments? Huh? Any uh, uh, sexual harassment, no, shall we say? I haven't had anything like that, thank God. Just, you know, comments. Like, when I was first starting out, guys would say stuff like, you're pretty good for a girl, you know. Or worse yet, they would say, you're pretty good for a chick. I hated that word back then because I was a feminist. I like to think of myself as a feminist. So, you know, that was not cool back in the day to call women chicks. Although I will say I have two sisters. Starting somewhere in the 80s or 90s, they started to use the word chick. Yeah. It's almost like black people using the N-word. Yeah. And, right. you know, it's a funny thing because I come from a female-dominated family. You can get caught up in a conversation and saying jokingly, <laughs> and there are certain yeah. people who say, no, you can't say that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we can call each other chick and bitch and <laughs> whatever else we want to call each other, you know. I know what you mean. Yeah. So how about in business? Like you go for a meeting and they – you feel if you were a guy in a meeting or in a studio, it would go down differently? Well, you know, I just, my head just doesn't go in that direction. I don't think in those terms of like, you know, all men do this or all women are like this. So, you know, I just think, I would think more in terms of the actual person, like if so-and-so was in here right now, like Steve Earle, who 
is just like, you know, when he says something, that's it. You know, he's just got one of those personalities, you know, and I'm just not like that. I'm more kind of, you know, shy or I kind of retreat back, you know, like it's harder for me to be um, aggressive or assertive as opposed to like, so if I was in the studio, I might say, I, w God, I wish Steve was in here with me right now because he could explain what I mean to them. And part of it would be just trying to describe and explain what I wanted to, the sound I wanted to get or something like that, you know, to the engineer and the producer. Like, that would be hard sometimes. So, Tell us about the stroke. Yeah, that was a surprise and a shock if there ever was one. I was in, it was a normal, regular day. I was in the bathroom getting ready to take a shower at our house in Nashville. And I just felt really exhausted all of a sudden, like to the point where all I wanted to do was lay down. I didn't care where I was. I just wanted, and it, it was this overwhelming need to lay down. And I just felt kind of weak. My legs just felt real weak underneath me. And I remember I didn't fall down. I, I saw some towels and I grabbed them and laid down on the floor in the bathroom for a minute. I just thought I'm just going to lay down for a minute before I get in the shower because I don't want to fall down in the shower so I just laid down on the floor and then Tom my husband Tom at some point saw me in there and he figured something was he didn't know if I'd fallen or what had happened but he knew something was off so he ended up on the phone with our doctor, our primary care physician in Nashville. He just described what was going on to her, and she told him to call an ambulance. And they came, and, you know, we didn't know it was a stroke right away until I got to the hospital, and then they said that that was what, what had happened. So I was in the hospital um, for a couple of weeks, and then they, at a certain point, I started doing rehab in the hospital because they had a rehab division section there with physical therapists. So they got me into that very quickly, which I think really helped, made a big difference. So I worked, did some rehab in the hospital, and then I came home. And then I had caregivers come to the house and help me. And I had physical therapists come to the house and work with them and so I was doing a lot of outpatient physical therapy and starting to get a little, at least be able to walk across the room without falling down because I couldn't walk at first. And then I realized I couldn't play guitar, which has been my main big obstacle. So I'm, that's what I'm working on now is trying to get back to that. So you had some level of paralysis. Where are you at now? physically um well it, i don't know if it was paralysis you mean not being able to walk well whatever it is you know better I than i do uh yeah you know what what ended up you had the stroke let's start from the beginning purely yeah. out of the blue or was yeah. this something genetic and they say it was going to happen no it was out of the blue you know okay so what were the effects of the stroke Okay, the stroke, basically, you know, I didn't even know what a stroke was. But it's when you have a blood clot on one side of your brain 
And, you know, basically your brain is confused. So that means your body's confused because your brain tells your body what to do. So you have to retrain your brain, basically. You know, your brain tells your legs what to do when you walk. You know, you don't think about that consciously because you're just so used to walking. You just, you don't think about it. But, you know, when after you have a stroke, all of a sudden you have to think about what you're doing all the time. And it also, what's interesting is, like my blood clot was on the right side of my brain. So the whole entire left side of my body was affected. And, you know, you just have to relearn everything. I had to learn how to walk again, which I'm still working on. I still don't walk like I used to, you know. So if we take a snapshot today, what's your state today? Um, I think I'm doing really well. People who've known me since the beginning can see the progress. I mean, I'm lifting weights in the studio with the trainer, so, you know, because I don't, I just refuse to, I don't want to get out of shape and weak and all that. I was in a wheelchair for part of that time. And we still do that. Like if we have to go to the airport to catch a flight, they'll have a wheelchair there to roll me through the airport because it's, it's too hard for me to walk through and it takes too long. And what's the status of playing guitar? Right now I'm not playing. So I've been performing without guitar with just my band backing me up. But the hardest part is when I go in the studio to record because that's how I, I, I started at a certain point. I, I realized the best way for me to record with the band was for them to follow me, you know, for me to play the guitar and, and they get the vibe and the tempo and everything from me. And since I can't play, I have to rely on someone else to play rhythm. And that makes it a lot more difficult to record songs because nobody's going to play like I do, you know? So um, that's the best way for me to record is for me to play. In the very beginning, somebody else would grab the guitar and sit and play. I never would even play. And then at some point, someone in the studio, it might've been Steve Earle suggested and said, Lou, you need to play guitar and sing the song and then let everybody else follow you. And that proved to be the best way for me to record my stuff. And do you anticipate being able to play the guitar again? Yeah. I mean, I have to say yes, because I just refuse to give up. Okay. We're the same age and hitting 60 was rough. Hitting 70 was rough in a different way. You've accomplished mm -hmm. all this. You have all these albums. You have all this acclaim. Even if you did nothing again, you have a good legacy. But what do you want to accomplish, other than the physical things which we've just changed, what do you want and what do you need for the time that's left? Um. 
I would just say just keep writing songs and keep getting better. I feel like I can still, there's always room to get to improve, you know. Okay, when I turn 60, it's like you know the trick. You see advertising and you go, if I, you know, if this is good, I'll hear about it. Whereas you're a kid, you see something advertised with cartoons, you go, I want that. Then 70, you realize, well, I'm not going to be here forever. And your perspective changes. In addition, we live in this era, you know, you and me grew up in the area. You, you turned on the radio. Everybody knew those songs. Now, there's almost no regular frame of reference. Mm -hmm. So, do you just put your head down and say, this is what I'm doing? Or does it affect you how things have changed both because of age and the landscape? Yeah, it def it affects me just like it affects you and everybody else, especially people our age, you know, and it bums me out a lot of times. Just you're talking about like what you, you mean, what you were talking about before about there aren't any rebels left and that sort of thing. All that. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely affects me, but I see some though still, you know, there are, you know, I keep on top of what's going on and I listen, I love to listen to new artists, you know, I'll hear about somebody, somebody will say, you need to hear this guy's really good. And I, I go out of my way to listen to people, you know, who are just getting started. And, you know, I get excited when I hear somebody I think is really good and, you know, I'll, I'll go out and support them and talk with them and everything and listen to their music at home and, you know, give them advice maybe sometimes if they ask for it, you know, just give them support, you know, because I remember what it's like when I first started, you know, so... There was a girl here in Nashville who's, she, her name is Alicia Blue, which is a great stage name, but it's actually her real name. And she's quite good. She's a really good lyricist, really good songs. She did, she recorded and did a video of her singing uh, this song, Jane Says, that Jane's Addiction right. did. Right. And it's really good. It's really good. She just played it for me recently. And so, you know, there are, I mean, there are younger artists, I think, who are, have a, enough of that rebellion in them, you know. But the business has changed somewhat, too. So you have to look at that. And I get more frustrated, I guess, when I, probably more about the business end of things than the artist actually or the lack thereof. Because a lot of times I'll see and hear an artist I think is really, really good and wonder why he or she doesn't get the attention they deserve or, you know, why he or she hasn't gotten a record deal yet. And, you know, people aren't paying attention to him like they should be. And that probably frustrates me as much as anything. Well, the other thing that frustrates me is people our age who are half dead. I mean, you're very alive. You're staying up on things. You have opinions. Then there are other people I know. Well, I'm old. I'm retired. I'm, you know, just into lifestyle. They're 
very weird. Yeah, they just start thinking old. They're old because they think they're old. You know. Well, you're certainly young, <laughs> Lucinda. I want to thank you for taking the time with my audience. Well, you're more than welcome. I've enjoyed this conversation. Great. Hopefully I asked some questions. We went some places that were not where you normally go. Yeah, we did. <laughs> that's okay. No, that's what I want. People who've been interviewed, you know, you try and ask to ask the same questions because then their eyes roll in the back of yeah. their heads. Yeah. But, I mean, I like that you asked different questions. I wasn't expecting a lot of them. But that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're a rebel. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> I am that person. I, you know, what I used to say in the old days was I believed in this wave theory. So in the 50s, the waves came in. Everybody was a beatnik. The wave went out and we had Maynard G. Krebs on, on shore. He was left on shore. Then the 60s, we had, uh, what's his name, uh, Ginsburg the poet. He was left on shore. Yeah. I never wore a, a leisure suit. I never did anything. <laughs> I stayed true to who I was. Yeah. But even worse now, today, only people, people don't even remember the way it was. You know, I feel like grandpa saying, well, back in the 60s, back in the 70s. Yeah. When people had values and they would say no, you know, you talk about being an artist, whatever. Everybody would say, oh, I can make money. I can get fame. Yes. Drives right. me crazy. Yeah. Is there, you think there's still that, that that still happens? I mean. Okay. You're a middle-class person. Your father was a college professor. Yeah. We are the same age. We didn't grow up in the same part of the country. But when I went to high school, regular public high school, there were kids who were middle class and they were the art kids. They were separate from the cool, separate from the right. jock, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And those people became the artists. A equal story is Jefferson Airplane. You know, if you're a middle class person, you say no. Bill Graham was the manager for a while. He said whenever they had a, any success, they didn't want to work. They want to stay home and smoke dope. It's like... You know, they had a feel for it. They wouldn't do anything for money. Whereas today, right. yeah. if you people will do anything for money, they'll play with dictators, they'll work. You know, it's like you saying you're not cutting the, uh, the verse from the song. Well, we grew up yeah. in the era where the people who were performing wrote the songs. And although there are right. some, there, there are some great interpreters. That was a, sorry to interrupt, but that is probably the, Biggest change, I think, over the, you know, over the years has been going from artists recording who didn't write to artists recording who wrote their own songs. I think this is huge. The other thing, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, look at the frame of reference. When Mariah Carey came in the 90s, that was pop. We hadn't had pop like that since the 60s. But mm -hmm. today, everybody was brought up on that. And they think, you know, like what you see on TV shows with competition shows, where for us, no way. The other thing is 
there are people our age who get plastic surgery and they go on stage and play the old hits to people who look old, but they, you know, it's like, you know, if somebody wants to go fine, but it creeps me out. It's like, yeah. you know, especially since I've seen these acts so many times, like, you know, unless you're my friend, whatever, I'm not going to go. I remember when. Yeah. Well, that's just boring. I mean. But a lot of people are disheartened. I mean, yeah. your success came a little later in age, but you're continuing to work. There are certain, you know, that comes down to whether you're an artist. And a lot of people can't. And, they can't. And that's a I'm an artist first and foremost. You know, I live, eat, and breathe and sleep with my art. You know, that's the thing. At the risk of sounding idealistic, you know, but it's true though. Well, you know, an artist that, can say no and won't compromise. I mean, you mm -hmm. might say, well, I'll cut my set short 10 minutes, but I'm not putting, you know, strings on this track. No. Yeah. Because everything is made from an artistic perspective, you know. So is it going to help the song or is it not? It's that simple, you know. Another element, and I've had personal experience with this, the audience knows. Everybody was on, oh, a, yeah. was on a percentage basis. Oh, do the commercial. Do the ads. No one cares about that. Oh, they, That's not true. That's not true oh, yeah, at all. They, they do. Yeah. Oh, they pay attention to everything. And that's the other thing is a lot of artists and performers underestimate their audience, I think. You know. Well, give me a little deeper. I mean, well, I mean, I just think. Kind of like what you were saying. You might not think they care if you take this verse out of a song or something, but they pay attention to the verses. You know, my I have the best fans ever, I think, in the whole world. Because they're loyal. I mean, they're patient. You know, they stay. They stick with me. If I make a mistake when I'm performing, they, they're still there at the end of the night. You know, they don't leave, you know. They listen to what I'm saying. They pay attention to the lyrics and the songs and they remember my songs and they love them and they love me. I feel like I, there's a real family thing there between my, my fans and me. Well, that's what it's all about today mm -hmm. because the machine doesn't exist. Like terrestrial radio. I don't know anybody listens to terrestrial radio, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's all, everybody... I was talking to my shrink about this earlier today. Everybody is their own thing now. Mm -hmm. It's like you make your own breaks. Nobody is world dominant. Like for all this hype about Taylor Swift, I mean, we remember when everybody knew every word to every song because it was on the radio. We all listened to the radio. Mm -hmm. Whereas today, yeah. you go around, most people can't even name a Taylor Swift song. It's not, I'm not making it about yeah. her because she's really big. Bad Bunny. There's a couple of these people. They are, the Stones went on tour in 72. It was like, you know, it was like the second coming. Everybody can, our yeah. age can sing Satisfaction, <laughs> Jumpin' Jack, yeah. Flash. We know that shit. Yeah. Okay, Lucinda, I'm going to go 
Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.